Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me, as always, this week is my co-host, John Tidy. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. Hello, everyone. And also, we have Glenn Schick from Glenn Schick Mastering. How long have you been mastering now, Glenn? I have been mastering for 25, 26 years, somewhere around there. Hey, you've been mastering even longer than me. That's fantastic. <laughs> It always makes me feel old when I say how long I've been doing this this job. Fantastic. I've been engineering for more than 30, though. So. Yeah, right. Well, we, sh- we should talk to you about that in a minute. Well, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. The reason I decided to invite Glenn on now is that, in fact, he has, well, an album he has been working on has just won the Dynamic Range Day Award, which um, <laughs> I chose. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. We'll be sending your massive trophy um in due course, Glenn. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm expecting it in my uh, driveway any day now. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, we just had to get a large enough truck for it. So um, yes, it's, <laughs> but um, and the album is, as you will know, if you've uh, been taking part in Dynamic Range Day this year, uh, is KOD by J Cole. It's an excellent rap album, which uh, just in the last couple of days hit number one in the US charts. Um, I believe it is the most streamed album in its first week ever. And it has great dynamics, which of course is part of the whole message of Dynamic Range Day. And is one of the reasons I thought it'd be great to have Glenn on as a guest, just to talk about the mastering process for that album. Maybe we could come on to that later, but Glenn, maybe you can just quickly give us uh, a kind of a quick history of how you got into mastering. I was initially um, got into the music biz as a musician. I was playing uh, a kid in Queens, New York, playing uh, uh, rock guitar, and uh, I was in the studios and you know tracking my bands and things like that. And I was always a little bit of a geek tech head. I had a friend who came by a session and said, uh, "Hey, I'm in the next room. Uh, uh, you run the board while I go do something." And I said, I don't know how to run the board. So uh, he showed me a few things and uh, I started, you know, doing assistant engineer for him for tracking. And um, then I ended up getting involved with, uh, uh, it was very weird serendipitous thing, but one of the first rap labels in New York, uh, I was in the studio again, playing guitar and the guy next door, uh, we just kind of hit it off. He was recording like some very early hip hop. And uh, we became like writing and playing and recording partners. And we'd go into the studio in New York called Powerplay. And we'd, uh, we'd track things in the middle of the night when the time was cheap. And, uh, you know, a self-taught engineer. Uh, uh, this was a, a guy named Spider D, who uh, uh, is kind of one of the early pioneers of New York hip hop. And, uh, yeah, that's how I got started with engineering. And then mastering, uh, after I'd been... Uh, mixing and tracking and producing for a while. Um, I had a friend of mine uh, who I did a bunch of assistant uh, sessions with. He's a very well-known rock producer, like a lot of heavy metal from the 70s, 80s, groups like Kansas and ELO. Mm -hmm. And uh, he uh, brought some gear over to my studio one day. Uh, I had a mix studio, tracking studio, and uh, he brought some Neumann EQs and compressors that were racked up. And he said, uh, try mastering. And uh, <laughs> I went, okay. And uh, I 
kind of flubbed around at it and uh, did some clients that I was working on mixing as well. And they said, oh, we really like this. And I said, really? <laughs> I just had moved to Atlanta, um, Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I looked around and there was one other guy mastering and there was about 100 guys mixing. And I went, God, this would really be a smarter move to go start mastering. So I opened my mastering studio in 1994. Huh, which is about the year that I got into mastering. Yeah, that's that's about pretty much the same time as well. But So that's really interesting. So you didn't necessarily have any ambition to be either an engineer or a mastering engineer originally. They just kind of... Originally, I, I think my initial thought was I would be a producer, which is kind of how I started, but uh, and more of a musician, producer, that type of thing. Um, but uh, no, I, actually, it wasn't really the goal to be an engineer. So it's interesting because, I mean, I originally thought I wanted to be, well, maybe a recording and mixing engineer more than a producer. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And, and I also kind of... I got into mastering because there was a studio that was doing it in a, in a part of the country that I was interested in, in working in. But with hindsight, I realized that it was kind of the perfect career for me. And actually, I, I don't think I would have the patience to do, you know, kind of long-term tracking or even necessarily long-term mixing stuff. Uh, is that the same for you or are you equally happy doing either? I, I kind of wholeheartedly agree with you on that. It's uh, I think mastering finds the personalities that fit. And those are the people that, that kind of prosper in our business. Um, you know, if you're kind of a perfectionist and if you're kind of patient and uh, um, you kind of are a big picture person, I think all those qualities kind of lend themselves to our biz. And uh, yeah, the tedium of tracking and mixing doesn't really apply to mastering. So it's a much fresher thing every day for me than uh, going to the studio and recutting vocal parts or, you know, going back to a mix that I've been banging my head on. So um, it, it's much nicer for my, you know, disposition to to kind of deal with it. Mm. Yeah, no, no, I agree. So one of the unusual things about you, the other reason that I was really keen to get you on the show is that, I mean, you ran a traditional mastering facility, right? For I mean, how long did you have, or you've had two or three studios? I've had about three analog studios, some of them as big as 20,000 square feet with multiple rooms running, a lathe and several mastering rooms. And uh, uh, one, we had a recording studio as well. But uh, yeah, I've, I've run quite a few uh, analog facilities. More recently, you made the decision to become a mobile mastering engineer. Is that right? I did. And honestly, I think... Uh, it was around 2008, 2009. Um, things were just getting so ponderously uh, uh, hard to deal with that uh, uh, for overhead and uh, the way things were working wasn't really conducive to making a good living at the end of the day. And, um, you know, we had like this great stuff with beautiful equipment and great rooms and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I felt like a lot of this was, uh, there was a lot of paperwork. There was a lot of office drudgery. There was a lot of, you know, dealing with staff and so forth. And everything kind of started feeling heavy on my shoulders. And uh, around, I say, around that time, I started getting the idea to put together a little rig uh, to take with me to uh, LA meetings that I used to have that I used to always lose really good gigs. It would always be like, oh, 
Glenn, if you could do this single in an hour, you know, you're going to get this great, you know, Chris Brown job or something. So, um, and I'd always miss it because I never was ready for it because, you know, I'd be gone for five days and then, you know, by the time you get back, they're not waiting for you. So uh, I put together this little rig to kind of take with me to do emergency jobs with. And um, surprisingly enough, it actually did pretty good. And I still had no idea what I was doing, which, you know, is kind of the, my MO for my life is that I don't know what I'm doing till I get good at it. And, uh, uh, you know, the same thing happened when I switched over to in the box from, you know, being an analog person for all those years. And uh, subsequently, I went uh, and closed my analog studio back in, I think it was around 2010. And uh, I just had had enough. And honestly, I was, I was kind of ready to call it a day. And uh, I really noticed like the quality of the in-the-box masters I was doing was suddenly getting better and better. And my clients were suddenly, uh, I don't know what you've done lately, Glenn, but God, it's sounding good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I hadn't quite made this big announcement because I was honestly afraid to, to say, oh, I don't have an analog studio anymore. And I was waiting for the rocks and the, the, the cat calls to start coming, you know, trader, uh, whatever. And uh, it didn't happen. And surprisingly, um, my clients not only accepted it, but embraced it. And uh, I didn't really have any of those kind of uh, old fashioned, you know, clients that were just like, oh, if you're not doing an analog, I'm not interested. They were all excited that I was doing something with newer technology, kind of on the cutting edge, and um, as we'll probably speak about uh, shortly, uh, without speakers. <laughs> so. Well, okay, so yeah, there you go. That's the, that's the really surprising thing, because when I first had you had a, a mobile mastering rig, I thought of, I know that Mandy Parnell um, took her monitoring system out to Iceland to master one of the Björk albums, for example. Um, right. And I remember thinking, that must be really tough, you know, because... A monitoring system is is the speakers plus the room. No matter how good the room and no matter how good the speakers, you you move somewhere completely different. Everything changes, and you know you're kind of back at the beginning of that learning curve. So, I mean, I was, I was fascinated, impressed that she'd been able to do that. But I was reading that you were doing all these different projects. I was thinking, well, he can't possibly. And if you were taking uh, your rig to to meetings and stuff, then clearly, um, yeah, you're not you're not using speakers. You're mastering on headphones. So, can you you tell us about a bit about that? Sure. And when Mandy was doing her stuff, I was also probably in Iceland at the same time in Reykjavik in a basement on an Airbnb <laughs> and mastering some probably number one records at the time on the table of an Airbnb. So uh, um, some of the things that allowed me to do that were um, I started working with some in-ears and um, just really for the size and convenience sake at first. And uh, I thought that those would be kind of more conducive than headphones because I'd never really honestly liked a pair of headphones until recently, which we'll get to as well too, probably. I kind of much preferred the immediacy and the intimacy that the in-ears provided. And uh, I had heard like a lot of people saying, no, you can't really work like that. And, you know, you can kind of do okay with it. But um, I didn't really believe that that field had ever been really investigated by somebody and really pushed to as far as you could work it. I'm a real big believer 
um, since, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a young engineer. I'm 55, uh, kind of at that age where everybody's, you know, heydays right now and, and, you know, the prime of their, their working. But, uh, you know, I, I very much believe that your ears, uh, can almost adjust to anything once you've had the experience to know what to do with it. For example, uh, lots of engineers in my age group, a little above, a little below, uh, all have hearing damage. And, you know, from years and years of, uh, you know, abuse as well as age and everything else, but do fantastic jobs with audio. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everything's not about the actual frequency response of things. And, uh, you know, it's not a, a hard, fast rule that everything has to be a certain way. It has to be a certain way so you have the parameters to adjust what you need to adjust. But your brain relearns everything uh, through uh, another set of filters. You know, I'll use that word for now, <laughs> depending on, um, you know, what experience you have. I don't think anybody could have done what I did if they didn't have the years of mastering behind it and just suddenly jumped into it with what I had. But uh, I started with several pairs of in-ears and uh, even started modifying a couple of them uh, and then bought new ones. And I have a whole drawer basically full of in-ears now <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, spent quite a bit on it because, you know, it, it's kind of a new application for this. And uh, very recently, uh, I've started working with a headphone company uh, and started working with them uh, as to use for mastering monitoring and uh, had very good results so far. Oh, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. We'll come back to that in a second if it's okay. I mean, I it's, it's interesting because I have done a little bit of work on headphones specifically for, I have this thing called the Home Mastering Masterclass, which is a, mm -hmm. a course that um, people can take to kind of improve their home mastering skills. Um, sure. And in order to do that and to avoid the problem of spill into the microphone, basically, I did mm -hmm. the actual sound work for that on headphones, um, which, I mean, they Sennheiser HD650s, they're pretty good headphones. They're not kind of super expensive. And I was surprised at, that I was able to get as good a result as I was able to. I still went back and checked the stuff that I had done on speakers and occasionally made tweaks anyway. And I, I want to ask you about that as well. But John, I'm curious whether, how do you feel about working on speakers versus headphones? Yeah, a lot of times I'm working on headphones just kind of out of necessity, just background noise and stuff like that. But if, I, if it's a mastering project, I absolutely want to use my Focals uh, monitors for that. And I will check things like the ends of songs on headphones just to make sure there's no noise or anything like that that I want to take out. Majority of it on speakers at a constant monitoring level. I think 99.9% .9 of all mastering guys work on speakers. Yeah. Uh, it's only just lately I'm starting to see a couple guys go, oh, uh, he's doing it. I can do that too. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's not common. Are there some of the, uh, in-ears that you would recommend someone's interested in that? You know, I, I've used, uh, like the JH audio product and, and that's very good. Um, I've tinkered around with a few other ones, including some, you know, no name stuff. Uh, I've actually modified a few pairs, uh, work with somebody to kind of try to create some things. I find with in-ears, you have to find the right thing. It's just like working with monitors where, you know, one set of monitors is wonderful for you and another one is horrible for you. So, um, 
unfortunately, the only uh, in-ears that I really love are custom molded ones, uh, as opposed to kind of the universal fit ones. Um, so it's kind of hard to preview those uh, easily. I mean, you can kind of get maybe 80% of the idea of what they sound like through the universal versions of them. But the the custom molding and the seals become so important um, that there's really no other way to kind of achieve the right sound without that. Do you get the impression of the full frequency response when you're using those? Because one of my one of my feelings about speakers versus headphones, I mean, I, I do find it fascinating and, and kind of my experience working with the Sennheisers makes me think that if I put as much time into learning how stuff sounded on those as I have into learning how stuff sounded on my monitors, I, I feel like probably I could get uh, to the point where I was happy mastering on them as well, except maybe for just the, kind of the sheer physicality, if you like, of the sound in the room, mm -hmm. of, 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 the, of the bass hitting you in the, the chest and stuff. So with over-the-ear headphones, you have this have a little sense of that you can still kind of feel a bit of yes pr pressure if you like um mm -hmm. do you get do you get that with the in-ears or do you have to kind of intuit that somehow well if your in-ears are a great fit and sometimes they'll take like several fittings to get to that point uh yes you can but it's it's got a different set of uh, just vibe to how you're working because the in-ears obviously are in your skull as as you know the over the ear headphones are you know, farther from your, your, your eardrum. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's just kind of a closer, more immediate kind of feel to working with in-ears than there are with headphones. They both can be good and they both can be horrible, just really depending on, you know, your taste and how the products fit you. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, I'm, I'm almost tempted to experiment. I mean, I have, I have a young family, so I don't uh, necessarily need to head off around the world because that's the other interesting thing about what you've done is that, I mean... I literally didn't know when I Skyped you where you were going to be in the world to do this call. You could have been in Thailand or South Korea or uh, any number of other places. Is that right? Are you or are you still traveling around or have you settled for a while back in L.A.? What's the situation? Uh, I'm in L.A. for uh, the next foreseeable little bit, but uh, I hope to get back out again soon. Uh, I've been here for a few months and, uh, you know, got a place but, uh, you know, my, my heart always kind of wants to get out on the road every once in a while. And, uh, you know, I'm just taking care of some business in the States now. But after I get done with that, uh, you know, I hope to be out again. Oh, it's, a, it's a really, really cool, interesting idea. So you obviously took a load of time figuring out the gear that was going to be part of your, your rig. I'm, I'm guessing, do you have some kind of external converter? Yeah, I use uh, high quality DACs and now... I'm working with a company called Cord, a British company, and uh, they're using uh, their DACs and quite happy with them. So, yeah, that's cool. I've I've had the the Cord recommended to me, so I'd be interested. And do you mm -hmm. use like a separate headphone amplifier, or is that built into the? That's the built unit? into these DACs, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, cool. And in terms of the gear that you use, I mean, my one of my kind of little slogans, if you like, is "It ain't what you use; it's the way that you use it." I really believe that providing you have, like you were saying about monitoring, providing you have a certain standard um, available to you, you can almost use anything to achieve the results that you need, especially in mastering perhaps where it's a, a kind of a more focused feature set that you're looking for perhaps than the kind of the full range of creative stuff that you might use in, in tracking and mixing. Um, do you find it, now that you're used to doing the in-the-box in the 
method. Do you find that mm-hmm. kind of restrictive in any way? It's actually the opposite of restricted. It's actually a freeing uh, thing. Um, for my clients, a lot of my clients are you know fairly well-known artists and are on a deadline for schedule. And uh, so when crash comes to the last part of the process, which is mastering, uh, you know, they'll deliver, you know, say it's a 17 song album and there's five versions. There's, you know, cleans and mains and instrumentals and TV tracks. So you'll have, you know, 160 separate tracks that need to be delivered. And while you're doing this, the process, they're changing edits. And, uh, you know, so you're working on delivering finals and they're still changing their their mind on mixed stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, so when I was back in the analog days, I would have to sit there and manually reset all my settings and roll tape or roll whatever the digital file was and, you know, wait for everything to go through that. And now I just call back my sessions and bang, uh, you know, I've got all my stuff set up. It's ready to run another, you know, revision that they've sent with a, a, a small edit that they've done. Uh, it's no big deal. I can print stuff faster. I can work faster. There's nothing that's been a negative on this. Um, and that was the shocking thing for me. I, I figured there would be something that I kind of had uh, a call for like, oh, I really miss those days because of this. But that doesn't exist. I don't really miss anything about the old days. And when I look at my old gear, uh, which, you know, I still have some junk in storage and I call it junk because, you know, I can look at an old piece of mastering gear and that's what it looks like now. It looks like junk uh, that I just want to get rid of. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm not romantic at all about old days and old gear and how I used to do things because it doesn't matter anymore. No, it's really interesting. I kind of come to the same place from the opposite end in the sense that when I got into mastering, uh, the place that I worked, I've said this before on the show, was 100% digital. And that was a selling mm-hmm. point, right? Because digital then was the new thing and everybody wanted that DDD symbol on their, exactly. on their CDs. Um, and so that's I, I kind of learned that the craft from that basis. And now I kind of look at the analog options that are out there and I kind of think, well, is it worth you know sinking thousands of dollars into this or that piece of gear? And for the most part, I just don't feel the need, you know? Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting to hear that. And I mean, I think things are going to go more and more that way. I know that Jonathan Weiner, I think at MWorks mastering is completely happy to, mm-hmm. to master hundred percent in the box these days. And I think, you know, we have more and more mixing engineers coming out and saying that kind of thing. So yeah, I imagine it's going to go more along those lines now. So we're not that bothered about what the gear is, but um, I know people listening would be fascinated to know, do you have any particular favorite um, plugins or uh, bits of uh, tools that you you could share that people might like to experiment with? Well, I mean, in general, there's a couple companies that I think make really nice product uh, on on uh, you know and a nice assortment of product as well. So mm-hmm. I like uh, Plugin Alliance makes some wonderful things. I use a lot of their EQs and uh, some of their other processing. And uh, FabFilter also is another company that I use a bunch of their stuff, and they make really good gear. Uh, a plugin I use quite often, actually all the time, is uh, a plugin called Perception. You may be familiar with. <laughs> I think I, I might have heard of that one somewhere, actually. 
No, that's really cool. Um, I'm really pleased you like it and you find it useful. Honestly, I'm kind of a minimalist. I don't use a ton of plugs. Uh, when, when I used to master an analog, I didn't have a ton of things in my chain. Um, I try to keep things as kind of clean and, you know, uncluttered, even in the digital realm. So, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to less is more, you know, my clients work really hard to make their mixes and I don't want to undo that work. No, I absolutely agree. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned, you know, you, you've got some pretty big name clients did you ever do attended mastering sessions and, and do you still do them? If you, if you do, how do they work? Or is it all kind of remote work these days? So yes, I used to do attended sessions and they were the worst. Uh, <laughs> you know, just hands down, there was nothing more painful than an attended session. Um, it would slow them down. It would cost the client more because they would end up tallying more hours and, uh, you know, having to stop and listen and, you know, kind of guess what adjustment they thought they should tell me to make, which probably didn't need to be made even. <laughs> and uh, so it, it ended up really working counterproductive for the clients. They'd end up with a bigger bill. They'd undo the work that I did, which then I'd have to redo again after. And um, it, it just never was a good thing. It was stressful as well, too, with somebody over your shoulder. So, you know, now I master, I make my cup of tea in the morning, I'm in my underwear, and I walk up to my computer and, you know, I sip my tea and I very relaxed, uh, go to my first job and I still have an office in Atlanta that, you know, sets up all my jobs and gets everything ready. So, you know, everything's ready for me in the morning when I ready to work in a good time to work. Not that's been uh, dictated to me by the client. You're going to come in, you know, at 1130 at night after you're exhausted and start working on this again. Um, that's not the way I work anymore. So, uh, I come in, uh, well-rested and ready to work and do a great job now because I can. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and honestly, my success rate of masters at the first shot, you know, without needing adjustments or whatever is usually around 94 to 96%. So, you know, I'm happy with that. If once in a while I need to make an adjustment for a client, that's fine. I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, even redo something if somebody's really unhappy, but um, that's really rare. And, you know, now also making an adjustment is no big deal. Uh, it's not another afternoon to set up to, you know, recall all my analog settings. And, uh, you know, it's no big deal. I call up the file, I load back in the plugins and I run as a new thing and I adjust it. Zip de doo. <laughs> No, that's very cool. Another practical thing. Everything you're saying is really appealing to me, but I actually really like the just the familiar kind of environment of my room coming in, closing the door, you know, kind of there's there's a, a kind of a mindset thing that happens there as well. Does oh, do you do that. you set yourself up a little a kind of a separate space in wherever you're if you're if you're kind of around the world somewhere, do you have a work room or I can imagine you working, you know, sitting looking out over some beautiful beach somewhere or the places I've worked over the last four years have been amazing. So, you know, like you mentioned, I'd work out of, uh, you know, in Reykjavik in Iceland, you know, and, um, you know, I'd set up in a, uh, an Airbnb and it'd usually be like a kitchen table. Um, in, uh, there was a place I was mastering in Busan, uh, South Korea, and I set up my workstation literally facing the water and, you know, like you said, on a beach basically. And I had this 
amazing coastline view and I'd master every day, you know, again, just drinking my coffee or tea and, you know, just always in a good mindset because I would bring these beautiful places to my work. So mm. I wasn't really missing any of the, you know, uh, studio stuff other than the social aspect of, you know, saying hi to everyone and, you know, meeting some new clients and stuff. I do miss that. But, uh, you know, I, I still talk to them and interact with them and all that. So it, it's not that bad. <laughs> it doesn't sound that bad at all. I'm sure you're no. going to be inspiring a whole new generation of uh, budding master engineer, mastering engineers who are listening to this. Um, listen, great work on, on KOD. Um, Thank you. You know, for, for, for J. Cole. Uh, I love the way that it sounded. I mean, it, it's still a loud album. You know, there's, but it's intended to be right. It's still quite an aggressive. You know, the beats and stuff need to hit hard. Yeah, I know that Jake Cole, uh, the album before his last one, uh, Forest Hills Drive. I remember reading an interview where he uh, he said he deliberately wanted that one to be more dynamic when he got it mastered, mm -hmm. and that was. Um, but I think that was kind of had more of a mellow, laid back feel, perhaps in this one. And then the album in between, I was disappointed that he seemed to have changed his mind about that, and it was pushed much harder. Um, mm -hmm. so did it come from him this time that he wanted to take a step back again or was it from you? And, and what was that conversation like? So we did actually have a talk, uh, before we started getting into the album and, um, this album particularly, um, he did a lot of his own tracking and did some of the initial mixes, not the ones that ended up on the album. Cause, uh, this guy, uh, Ms. Davis did the, uh, mixes for the album he really was hands-on in other words on this record more than any other record he's been. And, um, he was very much trying to, uh, understand the process and the mastering part was the hardest part for him because he, he it wasn't his hands-on process that he'd been used to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had a talk at the beginning and he told me, you know, he wanted it this and that, and the really, you know, the, the mixes had, huge amounts of bass information. And, uh, he was really digging that. And, uh, you know, we had a discussion at first that, you know, that's going to prevent a little bit of the volume from, you know, going up if we want to maintain some dynamic range on this. And, uh, you know, I, to J Cole's credit, um, he was very receptive and, uh, kind of respectful for my position on it. You know, so I very much appreciated him as a client uh, letting me do my thing. And during the process, we did try a couple of things, you know, going a little more this way or going a little more this way. And, you know, just to kind of let him hear what it sounded like. But for the most part, we kind of agreed that, you know, this was the best balance of dynamic versus loudness versus, you know, low end, how much, you know, body is left there. And, uh, we really were able to keep uh, you know, pretty much all the body of what he had for his tracks without sacrificing a lot. And, you know, I, I didn't crush anything, which is, you know, hopefully why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Was that a lot of work to do or was it one of those kind of, uh, it was more like polishing projects? I mean, did there was a lot of variety between the tracks or was it, I guess if he'd done it all himself in the same space, maybe it was pretty co cohesive already. No, it was, um, it was a lot of work, this album, um, you know, both from his side and from my side. Um, but, you know, I think he's very meticulous about how he works and uh, wants it the way he feels in his mind that it's supposed to sound. So, um, you know, it went through 
a bunch of revisions, uh, you know, not, not necessarily all on mastering, but definitely on mastering too. But uh, so we tried some different things and saw where the best place for him was, where he was comfortable with it, where I was comfortable with it. And, uh, you know, that's what we settled on for the final stuff. So. No, it sounds, sounds ideal. There are different kind of types of mastering engineers. I know there are some, some guys who almost every project, the first thing they do is send it back with some comments saying, I really think you should address this, this, and this. Personally, I tend to find there isn't enough time to do that usually because people, it's like all right at the last minute. So it's usually a case of, well, that's what we have and you just got to make the best that you can with that. Um, how, how does it go for you usually? Well, it, it varies from project to project. The guy who was the mix engineer, uh, Mez, uh, was a real pleasure to work with, and you know he's his staff engineer, and um, you know is a really hardworking guy and a talented guy. So um, he did a bang up job on the stuff too, and you know was kind of the uh, go between between you know uh, J Cole's wanting something to what I could deliver, and you know uh, Mez would kind of work with it, you know in between to kind of get the balance for both of us working right. So it, it was a team effort in every way, which is the kind, that's the kind of jobs I love. Um, you know, some of my favorite engineers is guys like Seth Perkins who passed away last year, a futures engineer. And, you know, guys like that are guys that are always, uh, conscious that this is team effort. This is not me being, you know, the hotshot mastering guy. This is not you being the hotshot mixer or, you know, the producer doesn't, you know, get a attitude either. We're all working on the same side to get something good. And those are the projects that are always the most fulfilling. So. Yeah, absolutely. And the great thing about this is that, you know, obviously um, it's had such a great reception. You know, there's, there's great reviews. Um, the, the the stats in terms of the streaming and the chart positions and stuff are fantastic. So I love the fact that J. Cole has taken the the decision to, to you know, to trust your, your advice, as you say, and go with something that maybe is not what people necessarily expect. Um, and the audience are going, yeah, we love this stuff and that's you know one of the the big reasons that i wanted to choose this for for the dynamic range day award is just because i want to the whole idea of the award is to to show people that this is possible you know that i think there are so many people who feel that they have to do things a certain way in order to achieve success or sales or whatever i've seen a change over the last couple of years of people becoming more aware of the the way that things sound when they get played online because of loudness normalization um and just the, you know, the fact that there have been some huge releases that have been hugely successful that have been more dynamic. Have you seen a change in what your clients are asking you to do? Or is it the kind of same as it ever was? How do you feel about it? It's not the same as it was. It's really kind of uh, gotten better in many ways to me. Like this business is, is much more pleasurable for me now than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, my clients... Um, are very, you know, as, as I said with J. Cole, um, respectful of the fact that I want to do good for them. So, you know, one of my, my mottos for my business is serve the music. And, you know, that's the only way you can really approach this business is if you leave your ego behind and uh, try to really do the best thing for, for their product. So I have, you know, some really, you know, large clients like Amazon Music and things like that, where we discussed you know, they have a streaming platform that's all their own. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we discussed about volume before we started getting into, you know, some large projects. And uh, they kind of let me 
set the levels where I wanted to set it. And um, that was really refreshing and wonderful. And, you know, the quality of the stuff sounds better because of that. <laughs> so, Yeah, I mean, that's what, I mean, just literally the last week or two, you know, kind of coming up to the, because as you know, the, the, the award, I only announced the award on Friday, um, and this album was only released a week before. So it was a real kind mm-hmm. of last minute, uh, went straight to the, the top of the pack, if you like. But right. over the last few weeks, I've just been kind of trying to make sure that I haven't missed any great, um, you know, potential candidates um, mm-hmm. and, and kind of talking to people. And yeah, I mean, in particular, um, the Janelle Monet album that's just come out mm-hmm. this week, um, I was really hopeful about it. I was listening to it on YouTube and thinking, this sounds fantastic and it's not mm-hmm. crushed at all. It's, um, and unfortunately, I then went over and listened to it on Apple Music and I'm I'm assuming that's the same master that has gone out for CD. And sure enough, it's like three or four dBs louder, oh. which is kind of crazy to me because it's like this is that that's a, that's an example where literally I would choose to listen to the YouTube version versus the CD mm-hmm. because right. it sounds better. And it, it's just such a shame to know that those great sounding mixes were there coming out of the studio, and then at some stage it was decided that you know the, the cd had to be pushed harder for whatever reason um and yeah i mean the people are saying the same thing about vinyl you have a so you know technically in terms of the specifications an inferior format um where sometimes the vinyl cuts sound better again because they have a more dynamic material um and that's preserved onto the vinyl where you know in the in the cd's it's not so the vinyl honestly uh i was going to say because we we cut vinyl for years um, but some of the reason that the vinyl sounds better now is literally because most cutting engineers, uh, the guys that operate the lays are so afraid to blow the cutting heads now, which are almost irreplaceable parts for lays are al- almost in- impossible to get now, but the specifically the heads, there's only like two guys in the world that can repair them now. So, you know, people are very, uh, uh, cautious of volume and really pushing things for for vinyl now, especially. So it's actually worked in the benefit for getting better sounding records too. But um, yeah, they're very cautious now because of that. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'd, I've I've never uh, cut vinyl. I've I've heard that you know that's one of the reasons stuff doesn't get cut too hot is to avoid burning out the head. But the fact that it's just impossible to repair them is uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah another perspective on it. Um, mm-hmm. Well. Listen, uh, thank you so much. It's, it's been great talking to you. John, I'm aware that I've completely monopolized the, the conversation. Uh, you know, just listening to us talking here, were there any questions that you'd be interested to ask Glenn or anything you think we should uh, go circle around on and, and look at in more detail? I may have had a question, but I've forgotten it. I've been enjoying the conversation, so uh, no worries at all. <laughs> oh, I remembered one thing I was going to ask you, Glenn. You mentioned that uh, you were happy using in-ears, but you might have found a pair of traditional headphones that you were interested in. Are you, are you able to share what those are? Yeah, actually, the, the entire KOD album was mastered with uh, some Audi's headphones. And uh, I've recently started working with them and uh, actually going up to their factory tomorrow in uh, California. And uh, uh, they're a really interesting company and uh, they make some really unique product that's, that's kind of sonically, uh, you know, it stands a little apart from anything else I've heard. And it's uh, electrostatic drivers as opposed to dynamic. So it, it's been, you know, a little adjustment for me, you know, as far as that as well. But I've been getting really good results with it. And uh, I'm looking forward to exploring more with them in the future. So 
Yeah, I'm really interested to try some electrostatic headphones. I um, Bob Katz played me some stuff on them when I was at the AES uh, convention last year, and they sounded amazing. Um, you know, I'll tell you honestly, one of the biggest things, even though we had like great Francis Manzella design rooms and, you know, $100,000 Dunlavy speakers and, you know, all this kind of, you know, creme de la creme of acoustic stuff, um, you know, when you were working in an analog room, you'd go lean over to grab the EQ in the rack to the right of you, and now you're off axis on the tweeter mm. and things sound different. <laughs> so, you know, for all that's said and done for, you know, wonderful acoustic rooms, and I'm not putting them down in any way, there's also a lot of advantages to not, you know, having your head change the axis constantly of your, your, where the sweet spots are and, you know, where the phase relationships is, are in the audio. So, um, you know, no less having a room negatively affect certain things, which all rooms do. Some, some people would rather list the disadvantages. I'd rather list the advantages of the format I use now and just really say that I can do a way more consistent and better job than I ever have in my life. And, you know, uh, I think the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, the Cole album is number one this week. We had a bunch of number ones last you know, you're, uh, you know, we got a Grammy this year. Uh, things are, you know, looking fairly <laughs> sweet for us. So. Yeah, I was going to say, it certainly uh, seems to be so. working for you. Absolutely. That's that's why I was so fascinated to get you on the show, because I think it's 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 really thought-provoking um, and interesting. And also, I think, inspirational for, um, you know, especially people who are up and coming. Yeah, if I was going to be starting out today, there's no way that I would invest in a, you know, million-dollar room or whatever it was for all the reasons that you've said, it just wouldn't of make course. economic sense. Um, but you need to feel confident that you're able to do a great job with the, the setup you have. So to, you know, to start exploring these new options, I think is, uh, yeah, it's really exciting and interesting. Yeah, no, I think that the younger engineers will have to develop their brain and skills uh, to kind of work into these type of equipment setups, but that's certainly doable. Well, listen, thank you so much again for, for sharing that um, and for making the time to, to talk to us. If people want to find out more about what you're doing, it's it's basically GS Mastering, isn't it? It's gsmastering.com. The name of the company is actually Glenn Schick Mastering, but uh, the our web address is uh, gsmastering.com. You know, uh, Instagram is gsmastering, Twitter, gsmastering, Facebook, you know, that that's the easiest way to find us. But uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty visible, so. Excellent. Um, well, listen, thank you so much. Thank you, Ian, and thank you, John. Thanks to John for being a great co-host as ever, even though you didn't get to say much this time, um, and for mixing and editing the episodes as always. My pleasure. Uh, thanks to Kaylee Law for uh, letting us use his music. If you would like to check out any of the show notes for this episode or any others, um, I've also interviewed on past episodes Bob Ludwig and Matt Colton, previous uh, mastering engineers who worked on albums that won the Dynamic Range Day Award. Uh, head over to themasteringshow.com. Please leave us a review, themasteringshow.com forward slash review. And thanks for listening. <laughs>